great to be with you. Uh, I love being out there, and I enjoy the privilege of being able to, to, to serve in this way. I want to start with a story. A cloud covered the sun, and people held their breath as a man dressed in black with a big black hat top a black horse rode into town. Two pistols swung from his hips. Above his evil mustache, you could see his cold, flinty eyes. Black Bart had just ridden into town. He got off his horse, strode purposefully to the middle of the street. All eyes turned to the sheriff's door, and out stepped Sheriff Dan, dressed in white, from his boots to his hat, and the people cheered. Confidently, the sheriff walked to a spot 20 paces from Black Bart. Sheriff's eyes were cool and calm. Wright was on his side. And the two just stared at each other for a minute. Then Sheriff Dan said, draw. Black Bart drew, fired, and quick as a flash, Sheriff Dan tumbled to the ground. Then Black Bart shrugged, got on his horse, rode off into the sunset, his wicked mustache flapping in the wind. Good guy doesn't always win. Perhaps you've noticed that. Maybe sometimes you've even wondered if the bad guy didn't have a better chance because his ethical code allowed him to draw first, even shoot in the back. Well, this is a sermon about when the Joneses do better than they deserve. And sometimes you'll look at those who prosper around you, particularly those who could care less about God, who defy God by their own words and attitudes, yet their success seems to make you wonder, does it pay to be good, ethical, a biblical Christ follower? Now, this is not a sermon about prosperity. It's, it's rather about disparity between uh, what seems to exist between, say, the prosperity of the righteous and the unrighteous. It's also about envy. If we didn't envy, that wouldn't bother us, those kinds of things. We wouldn't even have the question. Basically, all envy questions are questions about the justice of God. Does God know? Does God care? Is God at work in my life? Now, we envy people, the titles they hold, the success they achieve, the honors that they receive, their spouse, their relatively carefree life, their children, their manner, their bodies, their minds, you fill in the blank. It's different for each of us. But we all envy. And what we envy reveals volumes about us. Sometimes we hide that part of our lives, even from the people who know us best. I have to confess, I envy a lot and have. And there have been times when I just really envied this or that, this success, this achievement. And then when I achieved it, I just moved on to envy and something else. Well, Asaph 
the writer of Psalm 73, was no failure by any means. In fact, he was kind of like the poet laureate, the chief musician, instrumentalist, very creative, famous. He's kind of like kind of like the Charlie of the nation of Israel. He just was in charge of all of the worship of that particular nation. And uh, he was called the prophet. He was a seer in scripture. Uh, this man had achieved the apex of his career. He wasn't hurting financially, career-wise, but still, it really bothered him that God allowed people who defied God to prosper. Meanwhile, others like himself, who endeavored to be faithful, would struggle. So he wrote about his pilgrimage. And because he was willing to be transparent, we learn a lot. And what's really interesting as we look at Psalm 73 is to realize this was written for worship, for the whole nation of Israel to be able to use as a way to approach God. Well, first, we look at reconciling facts and faith. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now he begins there in verse 1. He, he gives us kind of a, like a premise a statement, but then he goes right into the, the depths of his feelings and how he has struggled. And what's interesting, verse, verse 1 and verse 3, he contrasts the pure in heart and those that are wicked. Now, if you're trying to relate to this, you might just ask the question, well, where do I fit? Because I'm neither of those. I can feel your pain, uh, but there's good news here. Because God says, you can be pure in heart no matter what you've done if you will admit your need for forgiveness and ask for forgiveness to become a Christ follower. See, the wicked here are those who refuse God's means of forgiveness. Next week I'll talk about making peace with your past, but for now, these two categories, the pure and the wicked, are not about a list of things that you've done or haven't done in your past. It's kind of like in Monopoly, if you find yourself in jail and you get a get-out-of-jail-free card. Uh, these people that are called pure in heart have received from the judge of all a get-out-of-jail-free card, essentially. Um, so pure in heart sounds maybe to your ear very, very self-righteous, but it isn't. It's exactly the opposite. Because the pure in heart in Scripture are people who have admitted they are very impure. They've admitted that before God and other people. Just like the Apostle Paul called himself the chief of sinners. So the people in the category of pure in heart here are people who have humbled themselves to acknowledge their own impurity. And then God graciously gives them that title and that status and that standing. It's a wonderful thing. But you have to understand that to understand where Asaph is coming from because he's in that pure of heart category. He's humbled himself before God. And yet people that haven't seem to be prospering. So he starts examining the facts. Verse 4. They have no struggles, these people. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. A couple observations here. 
Now, it's easy to identify. Maybe you've thought that way about some other people. It's also easy to, to really notice that nobody really <laughs> lives up to that kind of a description as such a trouble-free existence. But that's the way it feels. That's the way it seems. We tend to think sometimes, we just narrow on something, if I had that, everything would be great. Because I don't have that, it's not. And so he's struggling with these facts. Really, it's a struggle between facts and faith. And a lot of times people think facts and faith are two separate spheres. They're not in Scripture. Facts should square with the faith. And so that's what he grapples with. Why do these facts not square with what I believe about God and what God wants to do in my life? The goodness of God. So he talks about how oppressive this feels to him. In verse 9, it sounds like he's talking about our own society. Uh, those who turn away from God, verse 9, their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? In other words, these people, they, they in their, their ill-gotten gain, their good fortune that they don't seem to deserve, they seem like little gods themselves, like they are entitled. I, in my ministry, I have a chance to travel a lot of places in the world, and one of the things that I'm continually impressed with is how enviable you all are. We in the United States are the envy of the majority of the world. They look at us and they wish. Even, even the people that you might feel are the least, you might feel yourself being the least fortunate of people here in the U.S., you are enviable to most of the world. But that doesn't stop us from feeling very much envious of each other and for a whole host of reasons. Now, Asaph's grappling with these facts. Where do you get your facts that lead you to envy? Um, well, there's a whole bunch of ways. <laughs> He's describing a society that's consumed with the lifestyles of the rich and famous, living vicariously through latest sports heroes, tune in to talk shows, uh, see the latest Hollywood stars and their perfect makeup and their wonderful lighting and draped in clothes that you could never afford, uh, listening to anecdotes that they are telling from their lives that aren't even as interesting as some of the things you've told me. But we listen anyway because of who they are and how much we regard them. And it's not just these shining luminaries of our society. It's our friends. Uh, it's a Saturday evening, maybe, and you've worked hard all day. But somehow your to-do list has grown longer than the things you've been able to cross off of it. So you sit down to a meal of crafts, uh, mac and cheese, and meanwhile you, you check your phone. Uh, you haven't checked all day, and there's a picture. Some friend is sharing they took a long weekend, and now they're on the waterfront of Boston eating a lobster dinner. And there it is in all its glory. And you, for a moment, you feel happy for them, don't you? <laughs> of course you do. 
or want to. Yeah. So all of these facts bombard us. These, these, these truths that we compare and measure our own lives with. And they haunt us. Now, let's face that uh, green-eyed monster for just a moment. This quote by uh, Charles Munger. Uh, Envy is a really stupid sin because it's the only one you could never possibly have any fun at. <laughs> Perhaps not great theology, but it's a, it's a profound, thoughtful point, comment that he's making. And, and, and it begs the question, why do we envy at all? Why? It makes us miserable. Um, what's the mechanism at work there? Well, let me suggest that uh, it's different things. It's a rationale to explain why we're not happy, why we're not having as much fun as we think we should be at that moment. It's because we don't have that. If we had that, if only. And, um, but you know, you've experienced it. You get that. And then there's another that that you're chasing after. Now, what I want you to notice is how Asaph turns this around. What his journey led him to do. Verse 17, he says, I entered into the sanctuary of God. Now, perhaps he's talking about worship, analogous to what you're doing right here, or privately confronting, uh, being confronted by God and facing up to God. Um, you know, one of the reasons that worship is so important is for exactly this, coming face to face with God. You ever think about, it's really kind of, where else do you go in our society where people gather together, stand up and sing a bunch of songs <laughs> before the program starts or whatever? I mean, it just seems kind of silly a little bit if you never grew up in church. That's the first thing for you. But there's a great reason why we do it because there's probably no better way to get to your heart to confront God with wonderful lyrics about who God is, just like we did earlier here today, and to face God face to face. And uh, when he does that, it starts to put things into perspective. We don't know what he was struggling with. It could have been his marriage. It could have been heartache about his, his children. Uh, it could have been debilitating health reasons. Uh, it could be depression. We don't know what he struggled with, and it really doesn't matter because it's different for everybody. But what he confronts, when he confronts God, what he realizes is that the real reason for his envy is what some have called a God-shaped vacuum that we often feel when we seek satisfaction that only God can give. Uh, French mathematician and philosopher Pascal said, there's this craving in each person. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are. Though none can help, since this infinite abyss can only be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, God himself. The root of envy, he discovers, is that he's trying to satisfy the longings of his heart 
with some person, with a thing, with status. And only God can do that. And only God can satisfy. And everything else is an illusory goal. In verse 17, he continues, Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Uh, he's seeing what Paul Harvey used to call the, the rest of the story. You see, your story is not just about three score and ten or however many years God allows you to walk this earth. You were created to live forever. Now, something got messed up in that way back in the Garden of Eden. And so we all die. But after death, our existence continues for eternity. And the only issue is whether that eternity is in the presence of God or experiencing the hell of being eternally separated from our Creator. But he doesn't stop there. It's not just about the afterlife. Look at verse 18. He says, Surely you placed them, these people that are defying you, on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. How many times have you gotten an insight into somebody's maybe biography or something that you realize behind the facade of the many struggles and torments that they may have experienced? And those are the ones they tell you about. Even in a church, uh, you know, I've been pastor of a couple of churches, and uh, as a pastor, you are invited into people's life in a wonderful, privileged way to be able to help, sometimes give counsel, to be there for them. And one of the things I've observed that in the churches that I serve was that not infrequently some of the most envied people in the church that if 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 everybody knew what they were struggling with what they were facing the rest of the story they'd never change places with them but they don't know you don't know you seldom know everything about the people you envy or the thing that you envy or even what goes with it uh, i've seen I've seen where you know, th this is how often adultery occurs. You know, you, you, single people envy somebody that's married, somebody that's married, wishes they were single again, or they, or, or worse, they, they they ignore all the wonderful reasons that they married this person. And this is one thing that they really wish that this person had that they got and and. And that often leads, that's what often leads to adult, not the, not, not the choice of a person, the whole person over this whole person, but that one thing that I wish I had. And we do that to each other with envy. It distorts all of our reality, what we're really looking at. And this is the kind of thing that, that, that Asaph realizes. He's not looking at the whole story. He's focusing on just a piece of it. Now look at his response in verse 21 and think about our response. He says, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, 
I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Translation, stupid. How could I be so stupid? That's what he's saying. I've said it to myself too many times. He realizes, I'm so, I was so blind. I, I was so focused, so, so excluding the rest of the story. And he goes on to talk about the other side of envy in this. Um, but I think we have to stop right there. To admit to ourselves and to God that we do envy. That the Spirit of God maybe is really trying to, and has brought to mind perhaps even already, something that you have been envying somebody else about that is really poisoning your life. You know, I don't think envy in itself is really a sin. Do you think it is? I think envy comes to your door unbidden. It's what you do next that determines how it goes. You can invite envy in, drink a little coffee, give it some tea. You can feed supper to envy. You can even offer your guest room and let envy stay. It's the guest room that should be reserved for your Lord and Savior. But you let envy come in. It's your choice. And what I, I, I want to challenge you to do is just take a moment and bow before the Lord and confess you, between you and God, if there's envy there and tell God, I don't want that there. I realize it doesn't belong. And uh, I want to move on from here and let you be Lord of my life. Would you bow with me for just a moment? And I'll close in just a prayer. God, forgive us. Please help us cleanse our hearts by your power. Refuse entry of envy into our lives. Whom do we have in heaven but you? And earth has nothing we desire besides you. Flesh and heart may fail, but you, God, are the strength of our hearts and our portion forever. In Christ's name, amen.